Welcome to the third podcast in our Advent Sermon series. I'm Dan Rambeck, one of the elders at City on a Hill Church, located in Rosemount, Minnesota. Our service is live streamed from the Steeple Center every Sunday at 10 a.m. on both YouTube and Facebook. Bruce Bentley will be continuing our series with a sermon called The Trail of Peace. This is uh, week three of Advent. Uh, We began with week one considering the promises of God, how Scripture is filled with them, how we can connect with them. Last week, we talked about brokenness, and uh, we looked at Herod the Great, and I threw out this idea that there's a little bit of Herod in all of us, and along with that, there's hope for every Herod. Uh, wherever you're struggling and whatever, however you push back from God or the gospel, there is hope. So we kind of delved into that uh, last week. And this morning, our reading right here in the front, if you were already here or tuned in early enough, you heard a reading from Luke chapter 1 that may sound like, if you haven't read it before or if you haven't really thought through it, it may sound like it's a prophecy about Jesus coming, and it's not. It is a prophecy about John coming, John the Baptist coming or spoken from his dad. So this morning, again, we kind of back up a little bit here. Uh, If you're looking at it in a linear time frame kind of thing, Jesus isn't born yet, uh, but John has been born and been named, and uh, Zechariah, his dad, has something to say about it. So Uh, Chapter 1, let me just give you the background a little bit, okay? Zechariah is a servant in the temple. He's part of what the priests do to keep the temple going and all the different uh, rituals and sacrifices that are along with that. Zechariah goes into the temple. uh, They draw lots, and his name comes up, and he goes in, and he's doing something with the table of incense, and Gabriel shows up. And Gabriel says that he's going to have a son. And, you know, this has happened in the past with Abraham and Sarah. This is no surprise that God can do miraculous things. But still, Zechariah says, I'm old. My wife's old. She's never had a kid. This kind of stuff just doesn't happen, even though it does happen. And there is record of that in the uh, original Testament. Yet he has a response like most of us would. Uh, no. Sorry, that you, no, that doesn't happen. And Gabriel says, because you didn't believe, you're not going to talk for a while. And Zechariah shuts up. He becomes mute. And he comes out, and people are wondering outside the temple, where is Zechariah? What's going on? This is normally a fairly short thing, and he's taking a whole lot of time. What's happening? He comes out, and he cannot speak. And everybody begins to realize God has spoken, and something is Something crazy has happened, and he can't verbalize it. So you fast forward to the point where Elizabeth, his wife, has the child, and everybody expects that, uh, that they'll name the child based on the family name. And Elizabeth says, nope, nope, it's going to be John. And Zechariah agrees with that because that's what the angel Gabriel said. It's a good thing he's now listening and obeying, right? 
and not laughing it off or not saying, nope, sorry, you can't do that. <laughs> He's learned a lesson here over the last few months, and he responds in obedience and says, yep, nods his head, yep, this, this kid's going to be named John, and his mouth opens up. And then what unleashes is that passage that we just heard a few moments ago in praise and thanks to God for what God is about to do through his son. Let's get uh, some of these things on the screen here. He will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. That's what John's going to do. Uh, he's going to give light to those who sit in darkness. He's a spotlight. John, his life, his ministry is going to be a spotlight uh, to all people who have lived in darkness. There is a light who is coming, and he's preparing the way for that. And then at the end of, of Zechariah's little speech here, he says, and he's going to guide our feet into the way of peace. So the last thing that he mentions that he's drawing our attention to is the idea of peace. Now, peace is another mega theme in Scripture. If you look it up in your concordance, you have your Bible search little gadget, you'll find the word peace a whole lot in the original Testament and in the New Testament. Mega theme for us to dive into this morning, especially as peace connects us with Jesus coming. I don't think it's any surprise, and I, I don't think it's by mistake that when all of Zechariah is thinking about, as he responds to his son being born, the last thing out of his mouth, the last idea that comes out is peace. What Jesus, this guy who's coming after my son, he is going to guide our steps into peace. We all like the idea of peace, at least for the most part, right? We talk about this past year, we've talked more and more about peace and how nice it would be to be at peace or peaceable even within our own country. Violence and strife, the difficulties, the problems that we face interracially, uh, the problems that we face politically, all of these problems are weights, are burdens on our society as a whole, and wouldn't it be nice if we could have peace? Uh, we want peace in our world, right? The endless peace talks that go on in the Middle East and in other areas. If you've been around, well, as long as I have, then you know, you've seen the cycles. Uh, all the way back to Carter and, and then fast forward even to, uh, to uh, President Trump and some of the things that he's been involved in in our world right now. These talks, they come and go. And for a while, they have a glimpse of hope, Right? You get two warring factions to sit down and sign an agreement and shake hands for the picture and you think, well, maybe this now, right? If you're like me, maybe this, this is it. Maybe this is the, the next chapter and peace is going to come. And I hate to be Debbie Downer, but then we see other strife begin to happen again and peace is elusive. We get just a taste of it. And then all of a sudden it disappears. Well, I think what's going to help us this morning, the next step is to get a definition of peace and what it is that God says is peace. So you see it on the screen. I'm going to offer this as our definition this morning, a condition where God's authority is over all of his creation, resulting in order 
and harmony and right relationships, okay? Now, most believe, most people believe that, the, that peace is the end of endless wars, right? And conflicts and all these things going on. Well, uh, that's part of it, but just because we're not yelling and screaming and hitting and shooting each other and blowing each other up, just because that's not happening doesn't mean we're at peace either, right? You can sign the document and shake hands for the, for the picture, but it doesn't mean those two parties are at peace with each other. They made an agreement for a while, but it doesn't mean they're at peace. So to understand really what peace is about, we have to get God's perspective on peace and how does he define it. So true peace, the way that peace even the word shalom, what it means in Scripture, means far more than just we're not killing each other for the moment. It means that there is an establishment, a flourishing of life that grows and develops and continues to move forward when peace is present. It means that we're existing, that we're living, uh, not just putting up with each other, but we're living in harmony with each other that we can get along, that we can, that we can contribute to the well-being of each other. And that is something that pleases God. It aligns with his plans from the very beginning. So it's, it's, it's a mind-blowing thing to consider this. We've never seen peace. I mean, ever. Get out your history book, okay? There have been glimpses, there have been glimmers, but ever since the you know, thrown out of the garden in Genesis 3 to have peace, like this definition of peace, we haven't seen it. We haven't lived it. And we really don't know what it is. And when you let that sink in, that's kind of a dark thought. And not only have we never really known peace, we keep making decisions that lead us away from it. We acknowledge that we like it, wouldn't that be a great thing? But my attitude and my actions, the way that I treat you from time to time, just underscores the, the fact that I really don't want it. Because if I am going to have peace or be at peace, that means I've got to sacrifice something. Or maybe a lot. I've got to put up with not having what I would rather have in order that we could be at peace with each other. And there, you know, sometimes that's okay, but there comes a point with all of us like, no, I'm not going to give up that or this thing. That's more important than me being at peace with you. And that's been the struggle of all of humanity for all of time. Now, I know it gets more complicated than that, but that at least at its core uh, is true. We have not seen peace. And when it comes, when it boils right down to it, I really don't want it because I'd rather have what I want instead of what we can have together. So let's look at this a little bit from Isaiah's perspective. Uh, last week we looked at Isaiah. Today we're looking at Isaiah. We'll again look at Isaiah. Isaiah is this original Testament prophet. It's a really long book. It's 66 chapters. He spoke on behalf of God. He was God's mouthpiece to a lot of people over a couple of generations. He lived a long time. He spoke to kings he spoke to common people. There are a number of passages in the book of Isaiah that we bring up in Advent at Christmas time uh, that God was using Isaiah even in his ancient, he was ancient uh, at Jesus, you know, 
Jesus' time in the Gospels, he was ancient. But even way back hundreds of years before Jesus, he is speaking of Advent, of the Messiah, of the Savior to come. So we need to dip back into Isaiah every once in a while to really understand the perspective. Even as Zechariah speaks, that his son is going to bring his people into a way of peace, where is he speaking from? So Isaiah chapter 59, verse 8, you see that on the screen right now. That chapter in particular, uh, chapter 59, gives us a quick overview of just how not peaceful things were. How people in his day, their lives individually, their families, corporately, the nation of Israel even, they were marked by injustice. They were they were blind people. They weren't physically blind, but they were acting as if they were blind to what God wanted. They lied. They practiced violence, iniquity. You name it, the list goes on and on. Isaiah speaks of these things as God tells them to the people to confront them. He keeps throwing it in their faces. This is what you are. This is what you've done. And what keeps them from peace? They've built and walked in crooked paths. Isaiah 59, verse 8, the way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. So on one level, you can say everything's bad, there is no peace because it's all everybody else's fault, right? But he brings it home. He's saying the reason you don't have peace is your own fault, You've made a path, a trail for yourself that is crooked, that goes all over the place, and as you're going all over the place, you keep avoiding God. You keep avoiding his plan and his purpose and the peace that he offers to you if you would simply obey, and they've, they've made their own bed, they're lying in it, he's saying. You've made your crooked ways, and following that crooked way, following the own path that you make, keeps taking you further and further away from God. Now, even though you, you follow the rules and you go to the temple and you offer your sacrifices, you do these things that the law requires, yet your heart, the prophets say, is far from me. You can do all these external things, but you're not going to have peace because of this path that you make that keeps wandering away from me. In fact, Earlier in this chapter, chapter 59, verse 2, Isaiah says, all, all your ways, this crooked path, just brings you to the place where you're separated between yourself and God. So it's not just the metaphor goes from a, from a path to a canyon. You are way over there, and God's way over there. You've separated yourself. You think you're doing the right thing, but actually you've done the extreme exact opposite. Now, speaking of paths and trails, uh, I'm just going to let you in on something I really like to do. I love going on a hike. I love finding a trail or a path to take. Uh, when I run around Rosemont, I get super bored in the same uh, paths around, you know, boring Rosemont. I can say that, right? It is. It's basically boring. So I, I just, every once in a while, I've got to get out and find a different path, a different trail. It's far more interesting. And I love it. I love discovering a new path, whether it's along the Minnesota Trail or the Mississippi Trail, somewhere else, somewhere else to go. Love doing that. This past summer, 
we had this awesome experience going to Utah to visit a couple different national parks. And one of those is Zion National Park. And if you've got a bucket list somewhere, then this park should be on your bucket list. Trails all over the place. I was in heaven. I'd love it. And especially there, because everywhere you look, it's amazing. Your eyeballs pop out of your head because the glory and the, the beauty of this place. So one of the paths that we went on, uh, you see a picture there. So uh, it started way down the depth of the canyon, and, and it went really steep. And at one point, you're down in the canyon, you can't even, in the canyon, you can't even see where the trail goes because it's so far up on the side of the mountain and so steep. So after we went through a bunch of these switchbacks, after a number of times I had to stop because my heart was beating so hard, it was about to pop out of my chest alien style, and I had to stop and gasp for air. And then after a while going up these switchbacks, I stopped and took that picture. And this is... This isn't even the steepest part of the trail. There was, we thought we got through the worst part, and then it got worse after that, harder after that. And there is a certain level of danger to this trail. You really have to pay attention to where you, I mean, the, the National Park Service does a great job to make it level and flat, but it's still crooked. Switchbacks and drop-offs, like where I took the picture, I am on the edge of this trail, and the higher you go, you know, it's 1,000 feet. It's more than 1,000 feet. When you get up to the edge, it creeps you out, right? So there's a level of danger, which it scares me. And the older I get, the more wobbly I get. But at the same time, I love it. <laughs> to be on the edge of a trail like that and look over and to feel the rush of that. Because I'm in a place that is awesomely beautiful and on the edge of something that I really have to respect. I love that. So there is a, a kind of a theme going through the original Testament about uh, when, when the writers and when the prophets, when they speak of going up to Jerusalem, there is a, kind of a theme of how difficult that is. Because pretty much any direction, north, south, either west, east or west, that you come to from Jerusalem, you have to go uphill. So when they speak of going up to Jerusalem, uh, it's, it's kind of a spiritual thing because you're going up to the temple to worship. But it's also a physical, geographic, topographical reality. You are actually going up. And a lot of these trails, or so I've been told, and I've seen some pictures, a lot of these trails are crooked. They're man-made. Uh, there was no easy way to make a straight or even or nice, uh, uh, easy trail. They had to make do with the best that they had, and they switch backs, and they go around, and eventually, finally make it up to Jerusalem to where the temple is. This is important as we try to understand what Isaiah is talking about. People in his day were used to crooked trails, used to crooked paths. And I've never been to Jerusalem, but I've been on a few crooked trails and paths and realize enough that with the metaphor going on there, there's danger in any crooked trail. There is, you have to respect it. You have to keep your eyes open. They're difficult to navigate, okay? It's easy to get lost or get thrown off the trail or even worse, so Isaiah is speaking of where the people of Israel are with this trail. Crooked paths that they've made, their own making, that have become dangerous, uh, that have led them astray, that have, have uh, left them in a place where they're lost. 
lost without God and without the light of Scripture or obedience to him. For anyone, as Scripture says, who is living in darkness, that is not just a dangerous path, that is a dead end path. It leads away from God and towards death. There is no peace to to experience or to enjoy on a path of your own making. Does that make sense? Even if it, maybe just for a little bit, you can enjoy it, you can appreciate it, but this kind of trail you don't want to mess with. When you make it, it will, even if it's a really good one for a while, it will eventually lead you in the wrong direction. Thankfully, that's not the end of the story. So we get back to John, John the Baptist. He is true to form. As the prophet has spoken, John is a guy who lives in the wilderness and eats bugs for a living, okay? Uh, Imagine what John looked like and smelled like, just for a moment, okay? I mean, he is the quintessential prophet, right? Like, respect this guy, because I don't know what he's about to do. I, I like to imagine when these priests and these people from Jerusalem, from the cities, the towns where people basically have together, they go out into these wilderness desert areas to find John because word spreads of this prophet and what he's speaking of, and we better find out what he's saying, and you go out into the wilderness, yikes, here's this guy. Here's this guy living in a hole and eating bugs with hair everywhere, and he's speaking like no one else talks about because he's speaking of someone yet to come who is about to come that he's not even fit to tie his sandals. And so the priests get interested, and they come out, and they're, who are you? <laughs> who, who really are you? Know, we don't understand what's going on, and we need to report to other people. Well, are you dangerous? Are you going to lead us down another crooked path? Who are you really? And then John responds with words from Isaiah. He says there, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in, in the, and that should not say woodenness, it should say wilderness, okay? Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet said. I'm the guy that the prophet centuries ago spoke of, and what is he gonna do? I'm gonna make the way straight. All you've ever known is crookedness. All you've ever known is brokenness. All you've ever done is make paths that go nowhere. They're dead ends. But God has put me in this place for this time to make straight to the, the way to the Lord. Now, what, is, what does that mean? Well, it, doesn't mean prom, or it, it doesn't mean that he's promising that, that dangers go away when he says make straight the way of the Lord. All your problems go away if you just trust and believe. No, he's not, that's not what straight means. It does mean that all of the difficulties that they've made for themselves in their crooked trails uh, will be contrasted with a new and beautiful way that leads straight to Jesus. It doesn't avoid all the difficulties and problems in life, but it leads us straight to see and understand by faith this one to come that is the ultimate answer to all of these crooked problems, to all these difficulties, to all the struggling. John shines a light 
on this new path, this new trail, so they can come to it and see Jesus coming. So how do we see Jesus in this way of peace? In this way of peace, how do we see a new trail that lies before us that doesn't just lead anywhere and everywhere? This, folks, listen up. This is the message of Scripture for all time. It doesn't get more important or more significant in all of what the the the, the Pentateuch. And the Torah, the teachings of God, all of what the prophets spoke of, major and minor, what the gospel writers direct us to, what everything else in the New Testament speaks of. The path is made clear through Jesus Christ, and here are the trail markers throughout Scripture for us to grab. So if you don't grab anything else, make sure that you hear what these trail markers are. Every trail that you go on. If you go on a trail anywhere in a national park, state park, there's, there's a trailhead. If it's a good trail, there's signs, okay? And you read the signs and you know where you're going. Scripture gives us signs on this straight path so that we will find Jesus. And that's what we're gonna look at as we wrap up this morning. First one is the presence of God. This is kind of like the the trailhead, okay? The beginning of the trail. It begins or, or it restarts at this place. Because maybe you're at a place in life where you've been on the, the, the path, so to speak. You've known Jesus. You know who Jesus is. Maybe you said a prayer at some point in your life, giving or devoting or committing your life to God. But since then, maybe everything else I've said, yep, that's me. Because the crooked path, you keep building in some direction and it keeps winding up, throwing you off on a cliff somewhere, okay? Or maybe you stalled out on the trail. Uh, you can't see exactly where it's going or it doesn't really interest in you anymore and uh, you kind of got derailed or you sat down by the trail and just put your feet up indefinitely. I don't know what the metaphor or how you look at it is, but we're all at different places, Right? So whether it's beginning fresh, new, brand new, or whether it is a restart, thankfully, wonderfully, Scripture addresses all of those places that we find ourselves in in life and does so in such a beautiful way. So I have um, Psalm 85 on the screen. Psalm 85 is beautiful, good news for anybody struggling on the path. And maybe you haven't read this psalm ever, or maybe it's been a long time. I would encourage you to read the whole psalm again to really take it in. But here's where the psalmist goes in a, in a beautiful, in his poetic, uh, musical kind of way. Uh, he speaks of, will you not revive us again or restore us again that your people may rejoice in you? The people cry out, show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Steadfast love. That's another mega theme in the original Testament. He's speaking of the covenant, your steadfast forever love, okay? It's the, it's the we, every once in a while I bring up chesed, okay? The Hebrew word, that's what he's speaking of, steadfast forever love that is connected to God's covenant for his people. Show us again. I need to be revived. I'm tired. I'm tired of this trail. I'm wiped out. 
I'm confused and frustrated and, and life feels like it's going nowhere. That's what the, the psalmist is saying. Revive us. Show us again, God, your goodness. Uh, so we cry out to you, grant us salvation. That's what the psalmist is saying. So uh, he's saying the covenant promise is so good and yet I need it. And what does God say? God's response includes this. This beautiful verse, it goes like this, verse 10. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Now, what is he speaking of? I think, even though this isn't a typical passage that is uh, speaking forward of Advent, it's not a verse that we go to uh, that when we read verses in Advent time about Christ coming, but I do think that this this is God's response, okay? Revive us again, show us your covenant, your steadfast love, and then the last part of the psalm, God responds in this way. So let's just pull it apart just a little bit, okay? Steadfast love and faithfulness. These are not opposing ideas. What God is saying is, I'm bringing these big ideas, my big picture for you, I'm bringing them together, that the covenant and my faithfulness to you, they come together in an embrace, an intimate embrace on your behalf. Righteousness, right living that only God can do comes together with peace in a way that they kiss. So when we look at the original testament and try to find signs or, or pointing directions to Jesus, what do we see? We see God saying, in all of your striving, take hope. I'm going to come to be next to you intimately, closely. All of these things I've taught about are going to come together as if it's a kiss on the cheek. Pure and beautiful and inviting. Um, just like people in, in Arab countries today, they still embrace and kiss. If you're part of the family, you get a kiss on the cheek, right? We don't do that today. Even though the New Testament says, greet, greet the brothers, you know, greet the brethren with a holy kiss. How many times have we kissed each other before or after a service? I'm counting zero, okay? Now, I'm not saying you have to, all right? I'm just saying that was part of the culture. If you're in, if you're connected, if you're intimately connected, you just do that. You just kiss each other. God says all of these things come beautifully together and they benefit you. God comes intimately close in the incarnation. John chapter one says he pitched his tent with us. He came to be your neighbor. This verse, I believe, is saying he comes right up to you and kisses you on the cheek. You are never looking for him. You are always building your own path and God loves you so much that he comes into you right next to your cheek. What? Someone who has always pushed him away? Someone who has always done my own thing? Someone who's always rejected and in favor of God's peace chosen brokenness? And yet he replies with intimacy because he loves me. Now all of this is based on his action on his choice. He sees me falling off the cliff 
and comes and does whatever is necessary to come and be next to me. If you've lost track of that, not only read this psalm, but dig deeper into his message of love for you. If you're in a place, if you're stuck in the mud, if you, if you believe you've gone too far, if you've broken too many rules, if you sin too much, there is no depth of terrible sin that Jesus doesn't reach deeper still in order just to be next to you. Who loves like that? I don't. Can you imagine, can you think of someone? Maybe there's some good, some good examples of people that we know that love, but who loves like God? He does that kind of love to come and be next to you. Not only that, the presence of God, but reconciliation with God. The presence of God becomes relationship with God. Not only does he draw near, but he says, I will do whatever is necessary. I'll pay any price in order that we could be close and stay close. Colossians 1, verses 19 through 20, for in him all the fullness of God, meaning Jesus, was pleased to dwell and through Jesus to reconcile to himself, not just some things, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus did all that was necessary to make me, and, and the scripture uses different words, uh, to make me his son, to make me his child, to make me his brother, uh, to make me one with him. All these startling words that are used, but Jesus does to reconcile me back, to create a relationship, to even restore relationships. For you, believer, where it's been broken, where you've been frustrated, where you've forgotten, where you maybe come to a place where it's dark and you don't care, Jesus does. He will restore. He will bring you back. He is the answer to every one of our struggles and problems and questions, and he does it perfectly forever with the cross. The blood that poured out was not in vain, and it covers us perfectly, completely, reconciling us and all things in peace, whether they be past or present or future. Now, Jesus creates a place and a way to come near to me. He reconciles with me, and he makes for a just experience so that not only, and these two ideas are related, but not only do I experience reconciliation, but I also know that as, I, as I've been reconciled, I've been made just with him. Because God can't just say, oh, I've got a friendship relationship with you. Let's just kind of forget about the bad stuff. Oh, that's, got, that's in the past. You know, hmm, it's not that big of a deal anymore. He doesn't forget anything. In fact, he perfectly works with us by reconciling and redeeming and doing it to the point where we can be before God righteous, justified. We have no more, no more reason to hide. We have no more reason to fear. No more reason to think, what about this I did? 
he covers all of it and makes us right with himself. Romans 5.1, therefore, in all these things that the previous chapters and Paul has been speaking of, and what it means to come to Jesus by faith and to be forgiven. Finally, he brings it up to chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, in view of all these things, since we've been justified by faith, we have what? Peace. I can't screw it up. I can't. I can't. He has done the work and set me free and set me forever on solid ground before God the Father. He does not ever look at me and say, I barely tolerate you today. He looks at me as his child and says, all of those sins and all of those broken paths, they're done. I've forgiven them. And you are before me complete and whole and justified and righteous. What a gift that is. If you understand, or if you're at least on the path, on the trail to understanding those things, you have a precious gift, especially at Advent time, because it's not just worshiping a little baby in the manger and we feel better about ourselves. We have the depth and the richness of God came to me and found me and reconciled myself to him and dealt with all of those sins, that is a rich time to celebrate at Advent. All of what we have, the history of Scripture and its truth applying to us today. So the final question is, what path are you on? Where are you right now? Are you where the psalmist is? Restore me. I, I, I've, I've blown it. I've, I've forgotten. I've, I've, uh, I've just pitched on the whole idea. I've grown bored with it. I don't understand why I should. Are you, where are you at? Are you at a place where, man, all oh, that sounds really good. I would really hope it was true. It is true. Find time to discover God's plan, his straight path for you. And don't put it off. Don't think that's something else to do when you get older uh, when it's, you know, when there's, there's time later on, even today, do it now. All of what Scripture tells us, especially at Advent, Jesus coming close, is to respond. Receive and believe, John tells us in chapter one. That's where faith begins. If you read that, if you've heard this and think that's what I want, then take it. Take it. It is your gift at Advent from Christ to you, take it. Believe that he is who he says he is, that he has come to redeem you, that he gives you life in his way. He says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. Believe that and discover the beginning of faith that sets you free. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're grateful as we consider your word and its truth that there is a straight path that John spoke of that you delivered on. The cross makes that path attainable for all of us, for any of us today. Lord Jesus, you know if there's someone who is pondering and wondering, and is this, is this really true? Could this be, could God love me? Could God forgive me? Then Holy Spirit work in hearts and minds to be not only convicted, 
but to be finally relieved of the burden, of the guilt, and to come to believe and trust that your way is the way. Lord Jesus, speak and move in all of our hearts. Restore and revive this, uh, all of this that is wonderful about Advent and about your coming. And as we consider again you drawing near, Lord Jesus, cause within us a deeper desire to draw near to you. Out of love, out of gratitude, stir in us, Lord, the desire to keep on going with you, to find the peace that passes understanding that not only guards our hearts and minds, but our, directs our, our way forward in this day, in this year, in this life. Lord Jesus, be honored in the way that we respond to you this day and this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we're continuing our Advent series. We also have multiple podcasts to check out, including Genesis, Frostroads, Ruth, FaithWorks, and Glory. For upcoming news and events, check out our website at mycityonahill.org.